Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Well, we made it to Friday again. That's always a good thing. Thanks for joining us here on the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is prepared. Jim, I'm still not sure we've got a good martini today, but uh, what your boss wrote uh, in Politico is definitely good. So we'll start there. Uh, Rich Lowry, of course, longtime editor of National Review, uh, confronting Joe Biden. So that's the good thing. What Biden wants to do is most definitely not good. Uh, just two days ago, one day before he was uh, officially diagnosed with COVID, uh, Biden was up in New England talking about how there might be an official climate emergency. And since Congress is not going to do what he wants, and I'm sure he's mad at Joe Manchin, he's just going to do whatever he can through the power of his office uh, to, to move forward with his climate agenda. And as Rich points out, this is not only a terrible idea, it's uh, an important thing to remember what previous presidents have done that we don't like. DACA obviously comes to mind with President Obama, and Obama did a lot of other things too. But every president uh, likes to push the envelope with uh, executive power. And then whether Congress smacks him back or the courts smack him back or maybe they get away with it, whatever the case, Rich is pointing out this is not exactly how uh, our founders intended it to work. You can't just uh, do whatever you want, even though Congress said no. So, Jim, first of all, what do you make of Biden's approach to this issue now that Congress isn't giving him what he wants? And what do you make of Rich's response? Well, first of all, if you're going to have a national emergency, you need some sort of objective and clear measuring stick for what constitutes a national emergency, other than the president saying, hey, you know what? I feel like we're in a national emergency. And because we're in a national emergency, I don't have to work through the congressional process. I can just use executive orders to make the changes I want. It's that serious. Now, obviously, there are some things that are going to happen that everyone is clear. Oh, yeah, 9-11, that's, that's a national emergency. Uh, COVID-19, you know, this virus that people did not have any natural immunity to. All right, that's, that's, a, uh, uh, that's a national emergency. When you get the environment is changing, well, because it's not one big clear event that it's much tougher to say, oh, there's an emergency now, but there wasn't one a month ago, two months ago, three months ago, or something like that. A slow, gradual process is not something you can easily classify as a national emergency. Because by the way, if we're going to do that, uh, Greg, do we, do we have a national emergency at the border? I would say so. Yeah, it certainly looks like it. There's just way too much power in the hands of the presidency to decide, ah, look, I'd really like to get this done through legislation, but Congress isn't doing it. I'm deciding this is an emergency and I have the right to make these changes over by themselves. I am reminded of when Obama did this on uh, immigration law with the Dreamers, the DACA, and, all, and, and I think it was several members of the Congressional Black Caucus. It might have been Congressional Progress. It was basically the hard left members of the House had a press conference where they introduced executive orders that they wanted Obama to issue. And I remember sitting there thinking, you're members of the House. You have some say in what the laws turn out to be. This was a case of not just legislators being okay with the president taking the law creating and lawmaking power all to themselves. They were holding a press conference encouraging him to do this. At that point, get out of Congress. You don't belong there. You take an oath to preserve, protect, and defend that constitution. And here you are saying, Mr. President, please ignore us. Please do more all by yourselves. We don't want to have a role in this. We've had all kinds of factors pushing in the direction of the imperial presidency over the last few decades. But man, oh man, this is just a vivid, a really vivid example of this. And now 
we've got even more cases of this. Like the moment you are a senator, like Sheldon White Club, I'm sorry, White Club, White House, <laughs> no colored club. Was that the name of it? I guess Sheldon White House? Yes. Uh, of Rhode Island. The moment you're running around saying it's time for executive beast mode, resign the Senate because it's very clear you don't want that and you want the president to have all effective power concentrated in his hands. If we wanted a monarchy, we in the United States very well could have stayed with a monarchy. If you look at our entire constitutional system of government, the whole concept of checks and balances, the whole concept of uh, having this you know, minimum requirement um, and the ability for the president to veto it and the ability of the Supreme Court to overturn things, all of this is basically saying, if you want to make a change, you have to build a consensus. And unsurprisingly, the bigger the change, the tougher it is. If you want to rename a post office, I used to cover the House for Congressional Quarterly. Oftentimes they would do that on voice vote. And no one complained because nobody really cares if this post office in, you know, East Nowhere, you want to rename it, fine. Nobody else outside the district or state cares. You go ahead and do it. Every once in a while, someone would want a recorded vote and the vote would be like 434 to 1 because Ron Paul said no or something like that. But fine, that's the way you want to do it. This makes it very easy. But if you want to make a big sweeping change, well, then you got to build consensus. That is the lesson of our constitution. And not just a little consensus. It's very tough to push things through when it's 50-50, as the uh, Democrats have learned a lot. So if you want your ideas to get enacted, you have to make them more popular. You have to persuade them. You have to be able to say, you know what? Okay, I know you don't like this idea, but how about I give you that? And you got to start horse trading. That is how you build consensus. That is how you build a legislative majority and get stuff done. The Democrats are whining that it's too hard and they want to make it all done through a pen. It's a terrible idea. And if recognized that they may take the oath, but Greg, I don't think they really understand the oath that they say when at the beginning of Congress. Yeah, the Supreme Court made it very clear that Congress needs to do its job. <laughs> and for whatever reason, Congress doesn't want to do its job. They want the administrative state to do things. They write legislation that's extraordinarily vague. Obamacare is full of that stuff. And so are so many other pieces of legislation. Well, I just leave it up to the bureaucrats. That way I can go back to the district and say, uh, you, you don't like that particular policy? Oh, I didn't actually vote for that. Uh, that's what the EPA did, or that's what this uh, bureaucracy did. I, I, that wasn't my intention when I voted for that. They're passing the buck and they're, they're, they're a bunch of cowards for that. Uh, you mentioned Sheldon Whitehouse. Uh, Jeff Merkley, uh, Rich quotes him in this story too. For too long, Merkley says, we've been waiting for a single piece of legislation and a single Senate vote to take bold action on our climate crisis. Congressional action to address the climate crisis appears to have stalled as a result we urge you to put us on an emergency footing and aggressively use your executive powers to address the climate crisis, which Rich follows up by saying, embedded in this advocacy is the premise that when Congress declines to do something, it's a failure of the system. It isn't. A bicameral legislature representing all parts of the country and doing so in different ways, whether two-year uh, terms for House members or six-year terms for senators, demands a broad national consensus for big consequential changes. And if Congress declines to pass something, it should be cause for further advocacy. So, Jim, that's generally how it was set up. I guess that's hard, as you like to say. <laughs> yeah, look, this, this is basically when Congress does not pass something, Sometimes it's they can't reach consensus, but ultimately that is that is a decision, right? Not choosing is a choice. Mm -hmm. If you know, it's not to say, well, if they didn't do it, the president should have a way to get it done anyway. That's that's exactly the opposite of what the Constitution states. But uh, 
That's where we are, Greg. Well, we are certainly opposed to uh, the Democrats' version of anything related to sweeping climate legislation. And I'll tell you what, I'm pretty sure Net Choice, not a big fan of Senate Resolution 2992, but that's just my my hint on this. Uh, but no, Jim, uh, Net Choice says our country is being rocked by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership, and chaos on the world stage. Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that matter and ease the economic pain we're all feeling. Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world's standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world. NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, on to our second martini for the day. Definitely bad. Definitely a hint of crazy here, though, as well. One of the things we've said uh, as we get closer to the midterms, Republicans have certain issues. They should be beating like a drum all the time. The economy, obviously. Biden's failed energy policies, the border, and also crime, as well as schools. But on the issue of crime, one of the areas that's been the most maddening is New York State, uh, where we're not only seeing uh, soaring crime, but one of the reasons for that is because as soon as you're arrested for a crime, eh, I just let you right back out. The the whole no bail situation in New York has turned into a total disaster. And yesterday in Fairport, New York, Republican gubernatorial nominee Lee Zeldin, a former uh, decorated uh, member of our U.S. military, and he's a, currently a congressman, of course, uh, from New York, uh, is giving a speech, and he's literally talking about the problem with crime and the insanity of the low bail situation, which lets dangerous criminals right back out on the street where they keep offending over and over and over again. And while he's doing this, a guy comes up on stage, has some sort of device, which is like part, you put your fingers through it. So it's almost like uh, a brass knuckles, but there's two sharp uh, points coming out of it. It's almost like a Batman head where you can put your fingers through. And the guy says, you're done. And starts to lunge towards Zeldin. Zeldin and other people, you know, they, they they stop the guy from stabbing anyone. He's taken to the ground. He's arrested, charged with a felony. Zeldin gets up, continues his speech, says, I bet that guy's back out on the street before the end of the day because of no bail. And he's right. The guy is out. He's free. He's going to face this felony charge. But Jim, he's free to potentially do something heinous again while his court date gets set. So, I mean, this is just uh, insanity brought to you in living color in the middle of a campaign. Greg, when John Hinckley Jr. was released, I remember being really, first they gave him a little furloughs, times where he could, you know, get weekends off from jail. And I remember being really angry about that and having this sense that if you shoot four people, injure them gravely, I believe it was James Brady's death was ultimately ruled a homicide because his death, although it was many years later, was because of, uh, a consequence of the injuries he sustained when he was shot. But my attitude is you take a shot at one of our presidents. No, you never get to come out of jail. And uh, I remember getting to you know, this heated argument with Pope Pat, who argued I didn't understand about pleading insanity and I didn't understand how the justice works. And why would some knuckle dragging Neanderthal like me opine on matters of law and things like that? I said, that's a very simple rule. You take a shot at a president, you never get out. Sorry. In this case, you know, I, I think the attempted assassination of anyone in public office is uh, heinous and horrendous and must be punished to the fullest extent of the law. 
And the idea that you can attempt to stab a member of Congress and a candidate for governor and not be in jail that night is an astounding uh, illustration of the absurdity of New York's bail system. Um, Just two quotes that I will just kind of point out here that I've been been spreading pretty widely and that I think, look, ordinarily it's New York. It's a very Democratic state. They haven't elected a Republican since Pataki. Um, You kind of figure, okay, it's probably going to, I kind of wonder if this might be this perfect illustrative point that makes a whole bunch of Democrats say, you know, I just can't keep going the way they're going. I, I just can't pretend that things are normal. This is terrible. This is ridiculous. Um, as Larry O'Connor put it, quote, the state of New York immediately releasing Lee Zeldin's attacker with no cash bail is the best argument for electing Lee Zeldin that Lee Zeldin could have made. Thankfully, he got through it okay, but I wish he wouldn't have to go through that kind of terrifying experience. And I think it was Armin Rosen who wrote, quote, an incumbent governor who presides over a justice system that lets the attempted assassination of her opponent walk free kind of violates the spirit of fair play, if you think about it. Um, now, look, the governor you know, apparently has reached out to Zeldin, and I'm sure she wasn't rooting for this. But I think it's now extraordinarily evident that this system does not keep dangerous people behind bars and is at least a factor, if not the only factor, in why New York and so many other places are just awash in violent crime. So hopefully the state takes good lessons from it, but it does seem like we are absolutely around the bend here. And if you wrote this in a book, I strongly suspect editors would say, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. No, no, no place would ever just put them back on the street just a couple of you know, hours later. They're pro-criminal. I mean, uh, that's, how else can you say that? I mean, what, what are you accomplishing by, by doing this? I know there's been arguments that, you know, uh, certain people, regardless of the crime, are more likely to afford bail and others can't. I'm sorry, in this situation, bail shouldn't even be an option, much less no cash bail. That's a very good point. If you'd set it at 50000 or a million, like, okay, well, at least they set it for that. He's got, a lot of, he's got a lot of cash lying around. And really, if you are going to try to assassinate a gubernatorial candidate, you should save up some money. At least yeah. that was the old rules. Now you can walk out whenever you don't. <laughs> yeah, build up. Always, crime may not, does crime pay? Well, at least it's getting cheaper. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Especially in New York City. Yeah. Kathy Hochul did have a, uh, a decent statement, although uh, her campaign's been putting out a bunch of stuff. She's not responsible for this. I'm not saying that. But a lot of flyers about how Lee Zeldin is a dangerous extremist. Jim, mm. uh, Lee Zeldin, if you know anything about him, <laughs> I'm not sure how you would ever characterize him as an extremist. But I think that's kind of like the boilerplate uh, Democrat description of any Republican challenger at this point. I think Lee was- Zeldin is about as dangerous and extreme as a pancake. <laughs> I mean, could you choke on him? I guess. Yeah, unbelievable. Just ridiculous. Good luck, New York. CPAC Chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white-hot focus, or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our final martini, our crazy martini now. It's a follow-up to yesterday's news that the president has uh, tested positive for COVID-19. And we had this moment in the briefing room yesterday where the president's head of the COVID response was in there talking about the situation. And a reporter asked the simple question, where did President Biden contract COVID? And so then Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre swoops in and uh, tries to distract everybody. Here's how that went. Where exactly was the president contracted? 
Where was he infected? I, I don't think we know. Um, I certainly don't know if you, if you have any thoughts I, on I, that. Look, I, I don't think that, that matters, right? I think what matters is we prepared for this moment. I think what matters uh, is what Dr. Jha just laid out. Uh, if we look at where we were, were a year and a half ago, this is a president, when he walked in, one of his first priorities was to make sure we had a comprehensive plan to get people vaccinated. So, Jim, I mean, a decent press secretary, which I'm not sure she is one, certainly, but uh, they like to change the subject when there's a difficult question and you simply don't know the answer so she just you know pivoted to just general pablum about the uh, the vaccine policy which had nothing nothing to do with the question but jim the more I, I i looked at that quote yesterday and i realized we're not in the same covid situation we were two and a half years ago but the idea that families couldn't be with their loved ones while they were dying in nursing homes and hospitals the idea that you couldn't hold a funeral while your family is grieving you got the kids kept out of school and masked up in schools until earlier this year and so forth. Uh, And the contact tracing was like a a massive operation at that point. When I got COVID, I was getting texts from the Virginia Department of Health about trying to figure out everybody I'd been in contact with. But Joe Biden gets it. Eh, It doesn't matter. Greg, when Biden went off, he actually had two overseas trips in the last couple of weeks. One was to Europe, one was to the Middle East. You, You kind of figured President Biden was going to get it sooner or later. Uh, that as he became a little more, they, some precautions got lifted. He interacted with more people. He started shaking hands and things like that. The odds of him catching it from somebody gradually and steadily increased. In fact, as soon as he got it, I saw some people on social media you know, already speculating the Saudis gave it to him. He should have washed his hands after that fist bump or something like that. By the way, listeners, there's no evidence of this. My first thought was, okay, you know, maybe he caught it. Uh, you know, it's pretty likely he caught it somewhere on the trip. Now, he did do that event that looked like he was standing in front of a landfill up in Massachusetts <laughs> the day before. That He did interact with people then. I do think the virus probably would have taken some time to incubate in him. They said he had a, a negative test on Tuesday. But if it's early enough in the infection, it's possible the test isn't always going to catch it. So and it depends on your viral load and, and things like that. So I'll, I'll grant them. It's probably not going to be easy to track down who gave the president COVID-19 because he probably is interacting with more people, shaking hands, standing within six feet of them, all that kind of stuff. But as you acknowledge, this used to be a big deal. And if it's not a big deal for lots of other people, and by the way, like, you know, I think in the last month or so, I know of at least two or three friends who finally had that European vacation they wanted to have for a couple of years, went over there, had a great time, came back with COVID. Uh, my parents, having wanted to be on a big cruise, finally went one, came back with COVID. Thankfully, they're doing fine. Mom's already testing negative, And dad is, uh, I got to see how he's doing this morning. But, you know, their, their symptoms have been mild. So, you know, travel makes it more likely. But you'd really like to say, all right, at minimum, how many people have shook hands with the president in the last 72 hours or 96 hours or something like that? You'd like to think they're at least trying. And that comment certainly makes it sound like it's not that much of a priority which kind of makes the point of, ah, we've reached the point where tracing is useless. And you're then kind of left wondering, well, how far into the pandemic did we have to get before it became obvious people were interacting with each other far too much? It was kind of ridiculous to assume. Other than like the people living in their household, there's not much point in trying to track this down because you just interact with so many people. That's exactly right. And I remember... You know, when Trump got COVID, they thought they could trace it back to the Amy Coney Barrett outdoor nomination uh, presentation. Jim, it was like the Zapruder film. We were watching this thing from about 45 <laughs> different angles. They shook hands with them. They're part of it. They're part of he it. He coughs it was- <laughs> into his hand and then he goes over towards the president. And look, yeah. the cough is back to the left. Back to the left. 
it. And now it's just, eh, whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, to some extent that, it, you know, we're at, we're at a point where uh, the mutations of the virus make it uh, far weaker and so forth. But uh, the difference in how the media <laughs> covers these two situations and just covers it uh, overall. I mean, it's just uh, the double standard is very frustrating. Nonetheless, we, we hope he recovers quickly. But uh, the, the rules are different. The rules mm. are different between the two parties. Remember the masks? Muriel Bowser? Gavin Newsom having dinner, mask-free, all that stuff. The, the, the rules never applied to them. It only applied to uh, the general public, and it definitely applied to the right. But uh, different rules for the left, different rules. So, Jim, on that note, we want to end on a happier uh, side, though. And uh, we want to announce uh, something we're going to try here. And if it works well, we may do it again. I would love to do it again because I think this could be very fun. Uh, for reasons we will explain in the next couple of weeks, uh, we are going to be putting together a special episode of the Three Martini Lunch. And what we want to do in that episode is to answer your questions. So think of it as an Ask Jim and Greg Anything doesn't mean we're going to particularly answer your question. We're going to choose. We're going to be selective in the questions that we answer. But uh, whether it's about current politics, uh, whether it's about a particular issue, whether it's about a particular race this year, 2024, anything on your mind. Could be the Bears and the Jets. I don't know. We would love to uh, take your questions, see what's on your mind, and uh, give you our best answers to those things. So to do that, Follow me or both of us. I think you should follow both of us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at uh, Dateline underscore DC. But private message me because mine are open uh, and ask your questions and I will collect them and uh, we'll go through them and we'll decide which three questions we want to answer for that special episode coming up in a couple of weeks. So, uh, Jim, uh, this could be a lot of fun or we could get some really interesting stuff. I'm not sure what to expect, but I think it's worth rolling the dice on this. Well, remember, listeners, you can uh, private message Greg and that's it. No, uh, <laughs> I don't want you sliding into my DMs if I don't follow you. No, um, or you can just ask directly and reply to me on Twitter. Uh, look, we're ready for this. We're excited. Greg and I are ready to answer. I'm sorry. Greg and I are ready to dodge the question on any topic <laughs> you like. So you know, you know, we will try to answer them. Hopefully we'll get some fun stuff in there. Anything you've ever wanted to ask about politics, about the state of the world, pop culture, the Bears, the Jets, uh, Disney CTU, any of that kind of stuff, uh, we'll be happy to talk about it and it'll make a good, uh, a good time for a good program. Yes, yes. Nevada, diehard, whatever. Just throw it out there. We'll, we'll try to tackle it. So uh, we'll let you know about that coming up. So uh, look forward to your to your questions and hopefully our answers as well. So, Jim, have a great weekend. See you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. And please do uh, tell a friend as well. Thank you very much for your five-star ratings, your kind reviews. They're a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is uh, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And again, that's where you can send those questions or uh, send them. you can reply to our posts each day about uh, the podcast coming out as well. So in the meantime, have a great weekend and join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.
Hey guys, we know it's hard to keep up with all the news these days, but don't worry because we're here to talk about all the things. Biden's playing the blame game with inflation. Twitter is after Elon Musk and suing him for billions. And Hunter Biden is back in the news after content from his current iPhone was leaked. Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.